Hey guys, and welcome to episode 32 of Girls Gone Canon, Sansa in a Storm of Swords, chapter 6 and chapter 7. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You can find me on the internet as at Liza Narber or LizaNarberGold.com. And I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana, and you can find me as Glass Table Girl on the Maester Monthly podcast on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit or Arithmetric. And of course, we also have with us today, we are so excited to have this guest, one of my personal favorites, Lady Gwyn, Lady Gwynevar from Radio Westeros. You might know Radio Westeros if you've ever been on the internet uh, and you like A Song of Ice and Fire. They're only the Omega. They're the best. I love them. Uh, some of the first people I listened to when starting to listen to things in the fandom. But Lady Gwyn is here. She's an accomplished writer on her own. Hey, Lady Gwyn, thanks for coming on with us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you guys, gals, to talk about one of my very favorite characters. Not that we have favorites. They're like my kids. Kind of like Sansa is my favorite dark eldest daughter character. Not your favorite kid, right? (laughs) Not my favorite kid. (laughs) I mean, both Chloe and I were favorite kids, so. (laughs) Yeah, I'm starting to feel a little jealous about this Sansa Stark character. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Well, we're excited to have you on. I just got done listening uh, just this week. I want to say it was like Tuesday at work. I just got done listening to your Hedge Knight episode you guys put out, and it was awesome. It has a lot of people from the fandom that you might know, voicing some different voiceovers in it. Zach from Game of Owns, Haley from The Manimals, Scad from Davos Fingers, Aziz from History of Westeros, and Mikhail from Vassals of Kingsgrave. All were on it. It was really cool. It was a really good episode. I'm very fond of the Duncan Egg series, so it was awesome to see you guys foray into that. Well, thank you. And all those uh, friends who answered our call when we called banners for uh, voice acting fabulous efforts by all of them uh we are so excited to be doing Duncan egg um that is something that i've looked forward to for a long while and you can probably guess that what we have going on next is the sword sword eliana and i i don't know if knew this but the lore is eliana and i fell in love doing drunken egg the hedge knight together so having you guys on or you on after doing this episode is really special for us thank you yeah, that's exciting. The Sworn Sword, it has the hottest scene in the entire series. I'm not joking. You think about this scene every day, Eliana? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, I do. Oh. oh, well. Which scene are we talking about? The scene of Lady Rohan Weber and uh, and Dunk. Yeah. And then the yeah. and then and then like they pull each other and then like then be cut away, but he's like, Oh, but I have this and I'm like <laughs> That reverse Samson and Delilah going on. The- the the ponytail. Yeah. Or the, the braid, yeah. Well, I mean, if that's what you're into, Eliana, don't let us stop you. Neither Lady Gwyn or I will stop you. I'm very vanilla, <laughs> I'm sorry. We got a comment from our buddy June, and June wrote, Esteemed ladies, I meant to heap praying for a while, now I'm heaping. I love your podcast. It really allows for analysis of each arc and allows us to appreciate each character as they develop or fail to. I think one of the things that George is trying to do in his series is look at tropish characters from a fresh perspective, and Sansa is a great example of this. She forces us to realize that this apparently naive and timorous person is striving for survival as much as any warrior and acquitting herself admirably. I wish we could discuss A Song of Ice and Fire over gin and tonics. June. Agreed, first off. We can call these drinks that we have with her, we can call them June and tonics. 
Thanks so much, June, for sending us a nice comment. Apparently, you can comment on Podbean, and you can also uh, send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com or a DM or an, a tweet at Twitter at girlsgonecanon if you guys want to chat about things in the episodes, characters that are failing to, you know, become better, which there's a lot of those. Of course, we need to jump into what we missed. Eliana, can you give a quick explanation of our lightning round, just in case people are wondering what it's about? Yeah. So, because, as June says, we are doing this POV reread, uh, we have a lightning round that covers all the different chapters that happen between each POV, so that we can understand the context in which each scene unfolds. So, we're going to just quickly, like lightning, (laughs) go through all the different chapters that have occurred since our previous Sansa chapter. Anyways, in Jamie 7, Jamie urgently makes his way home to comfort Cersei in front of the gods. Tywin has new plans for the Lannister clan, but Jamie doesn't want to hear about them. Davos 6. Davos plans an escape route for Edric Storm. Maester Pylos gives Stannis a new objective. John 8. John takes the lead in the battle at Castle Black. Arya 12. Wolf by night, girl by day, Arya is stuck with the Hound as he reconfigures his million dragon plan in ransoming her. Tyrion 9. Claiming innocence in his trial, Tyrion is locked in a tower in the Red Keep, awaiting a trial by combat. By chapter's end, a champion emerges. Jamie 8. So many vows, they make you swear and swear. Jamie gets some work done. Sansa 6. Overview. Sansa is forced to take a new name and face on as Littlefinger's natural daughter, brought home from a sept to the Vale of Arryn. Liza, her aunt, insists that Peter weds her the moment he arrives, and while they enjoy a wedded bliss, Sansa fends off a singer's unwanted touches, Marillion. And so the chapter opens with Sansa climbing a steep stair, thanks to the help of Sarah Lothar Brun. Eliana's favorite knight, of course. He better not let me down. I've been standing him too hard for him to do that to me. I'm going to be Eliana so bad. Eliana's going around and she's just telling people how much she loves Lothar Brun. She's at like the supermarket and she's like, wow, have you heard about Lothar Brun? She's too much. <laughs> Lothar is kind of wearing some scrappy garb for a night, right? I think it's described that he's wearing some dun, which reminds me of our friend Sandor, right? Wearing that dun brown and green mantle. And it turns out in a bit, we'll find out it reminds Sansa of it as well. Sansa thinks that Sir Lothar is a lot stronger than he looks. They're still aboard the Merlin King. A storm has been keeping them off course, and several of the ship's men have fallen overboard or uh, died, according to Oswell. Oswell that ends well. And Sansa stays in her cabin most of the time. She's seasick. She's also feeling anxious. She's haunted by the image of Joffrey dying. He's still got the pie crust on his lips. Like, wipe your mouth, boy. A choking air, and he's purple, he's purple, he's clawing at his little finger, then decides to visit her cabin at one point to check in on her, like, are you right? And she says Tyrion didn't do it. She continues to defend him, saying that Tyrion couldn't have killed Joffrey. And Littlefinger, of course, knows this, and he says as much, but he tells her that Tyrion is far from innocent. In fact, he used to have a wife before Sansa, and she's like, yeah, I know. People just love telling me their secrets for some reason. And did he tell you that when he grew bored with her, he made a gift of her to his father's guardsmen? He might have done the same to you in time. Shed no tears for the imp, my lady. Littlefinger is basically trying to keep Sansa poisoned against Tyrion with this false information that we as the reader obviously know differently. Yeah, what drives me nuts about this is this is... Just true enough that it might be verifiable. I mean, someone could hear this story and then find out that it's kind of true. I mean, it's just 
typical Littlefinger dick move, or is it? Well, I mean, chaos is a ladder, you guys. <laughs> That's true. I mean, I don't know. I can't tell if he's making it up or if it's something that he like honestly believes, like the way that he thinks that he took Kat's maiden head, because there are a lot of rumors flying out there about Tyrion, especially when he goes around like what? Threatening to kill his nephews and he gets painted as a monster often and is this part of his reputation and thus what the masses believe? I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a good point. The window blows salty air through Sansa's hair. She wants to puke again. Like, she really just needs a hot, long shower right now after this trip. Mm-hmm. And Littlefinger, mm-hmm. like, he, he comes over and he's jovial and he's just like, I love boating. I love adventure. Man, you look like crap, Sansa. Which Sansa's like, yeah, yeah, I'm like puking. I'm seasick. This is horrible. He says he'll get her some wine when they're ashore. And where is ashore, you ask? The wonderful, dreary fingers. Sansa's confused. She thought they were going to White Harbor and then to Winterfell, and Littlefinger had told her they were sailing for home. But the ship next leaves from the fingers to Bravos, so off they board at the fingers. And so he gives her a speech about how his seat sucks. I mean, it's not like a great lord's seat like Winterfell or the Eyrie, but it's his. It's all his. He tells her that there's no way they were going to get near Winterfell because it's burned and lost, but he's taking her somewhere near family. Like, there's her aunt, who he's about to marry. The Lord of Harrenhal and the Lady of the Eyrie are getting hitched. Yay! Which... Yay! <laughs> <It's a> wedding! <laughs> Another wedding! See, she must be so yeah. psyched. <laughs> this one goes off pretty well. It's alright, we'll get to it. Littlefinger seems to be really amused by his match, and Sansa's like, uh, okay. That's kind of weird. And she thinks that, wasn't it my mother that you loved and not Liza? So silent, my lady, said Peter. I was certain you would wish to give me your blessing. It is a rare thing for a boy born heir to stones and sheep pellets to wed the daughter of Hoster Tully and the widow of John Aaron. Right. I mean, again, he's really pushing it in her face like, I shouldn't have any of this. Ha ha ha. But I'm so clever. Look at me. Ha ha. Twiddle's mustache. Like, okay. Like, what's your point? Little finger. But of course, this is a great place to just chat about political matches and these matrilineal-type marriages. Littlefinger wouldn't have been able to marry Liza at all had he not claimed Harrenhal after he brokered the wedding deal with the Tyrells, which he goes into detail in a bit here about how he brokered that and how he made all of this happen. Had Chapter 7 not gone the way it goes with Liza attacking Sansa, Littlefinger, I don't know, I wonder if he would have waited until Liza had another child with him before he got rid of her and killed her off? Does this go into his few years of peace that he wanted to let things grow, not just counting on Sansa rowing? Yeah, I think um, as far as what he would have done, you know, he's such a master of backup plans, it's hard to say, but a child, maybe, to claim his seat in Harrenhal um, probably would have been okay. Liza was, though, in my opinion, doomed to die one way or the other. Uh, But childbirth might have been a very convenient excuse, given Mm. her history. Yeah, and I mean, we all know Sweet Robin will be on his way out at some point, maybe, you know, whatever. And Littlefinger has big plans for that. So he gets his kid in, that kid's out. Guess what? That kid has kind of a mini fabricated claim on the veil. I mean, there's only so many contenders. 
Sansa, of course, is too busy thinking she maybe has family alive that might, you know, actually care about her, maybe be nice to her a little. She will be kind to me for my mother's sake, surely. She's my own blood. And the Vale of Aaron was beautiful. All the songs said so. Perhaps it would not be so terrible to stay here for a time. Uh, since one of the key takeaways from those earlier Sansa chapters, um, especially since the Red Wedding, is loneliness and her longing for home, uh, I really found this to be mo- so poignant, this moment of her just hoping that maybe someone is going to uh, be there to love her, a family member. You know, Peter dashed her hopes of ever going home, so she's feeling like maybe she's not alone in the world for a minute. Dot, 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 for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but later on, she won't be alone. She's going to come back to her pack. Rest of the Starks. The pack survives, guys. We just have to wait a long time. <laughs> We've just been waiting a very long time, and someday they're back together. Oh, Hang in there. Fine. We're going to get the fun. band back. <laughs> oh. There is nothing worse, though, in the show than that moment when Michelle Fairley looks at Richard Mann. She's like, we get the girls back and we kill them all. And she's like, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Get those girls back. Kill them all, even though, like, we've read the books. Like, we know what happens. But you go, cat. Yeah, mom. <laughs> Servants meet the boat as Lothar and Oswell row them to shore. Older serving people come to greet them, and they kneel to Peter. Lothar and Oswell wade into the water to get Sansa out, so she stays dry, which I was like, what a princess-ass thing. <laughs> She's like, they wade uh-huh. in, they pull their pants up, they lift her up and keep her dress up. I'm like, dang, okay. Impressive. Impressive, guys. Thank you. I appreciate it as a girl. It's like very, very chivalric. We don't see that a lot these days in these Game of Thrones books. Uh, <laughs> the servants tell Peter that they've lit a dung fire for them. And we've had a whole chat off off the record about dung fire. Uh, I'm going to tell you guys listening, please go give it a Google because I did. And boy, I j- there was a lot of information to traverse, right? Like there is just dung fire is a thing. Just dried poop lit on fire. They oh, literally took oh. animal poop, dried it, and just lit it on fire to have a fire for them. It's a whole new world. Old world, I guess. I'm not gonna sing, but yeah. Well, for me, it was. You say that, but by the end of the chapter, you might be singing. You might. Might. That's how it goes here at Girls Gone Camp. <laughs> just pitching this for Ice and Fire Con. We're gonna have a dung fire. Just sing. Alright. What are you gonna call the dung fire, Eliana? Oh, we're gonna call it Dung and Egg. The huh. dung and egg bonfire. It's gonna be great. <laughs> Peter introduces us to the main staff members. We meet Brian, the captain of the guards, and his dogs. Griselle, Peter's ex-wet nurse, who keeps his house. Umfred, his steward, and Kella, who minds his herd. Peter has 23 sheep. He had 29, but the dogs killed one, and they had to butcher others for mutton, according to Brian. Are they having that much trouble, like, getting the sheep to, like, I don't know, breed? But also, can I just say that I'm really irked by the way that Peter talks to his help? Like, I get it, you're so witty, and you always have a great, snarky comeback, but I'm just like... I mean, these people are just doing their best. They don't want to live here either. They're just, like, living their lives. And I'm sorry that the rushes aren't fresh. You didn't send a bird saying you were on your way here. And all Peter does is, like, complain. He's like, I hate these sheep and their shit and the rocks. And you can see how he just feels like, oh, I'm so much better than all this. I deserve more than all of it. And, I mean, it's his home. And he can, like, I guess talk shit about it if he wants. 
and maybe we're supposed to be reading it as him having a really good, honest rapport with his servants, but I think about Fire and Blood because it's fresh in all of our minds right now, and how Alisand, when she's brought to the wall to meet with the Lord Commander of the King's Watch, he, the Lord Commander's like, oh, I'm sorry, we just have uh, these beds and this food, and she's like, no, they're warm and nutritious, thank you so much, and here's Peter, he's just like, everything sucks, it's not good enough. He's not gracious. And can I just point out that Brian, his captain of the guards, is like 85 years old? Yeah. Cut the guy some slack. Cut the whole place some slack. I mean, there's been no leadership, (laughs) right? Like, there's no leadership, as Eliana said. He didn't send a raven. I mean, obviously, we knew that because, you know, the whole regicide thing. But uh, (laughs) besides the regicide thing. But it's like, he didn't send a raven. He doesn't come home. He's off conniving in other courts and scheming. Like, they're just keeping the place afloat. This is their life. He There's this big, I, I didn't really go into it, but... There's a big thing about how Kella has another kid, finally, you know, and Kella just keeps birthing bastards. Like, that's what's going to keep their whole entire place stocked with help. You know, they're born into that servant life, and they just live there in the fingers. I mean, Peter hates what he comes from. He hates what his family was. He gets rid of their sigil and takes a new sigil. Uh, He, you know, like, just denies what he is, absolutely. And in the end, it's great because he's going to come back to that sniveling little piece of crap kid, you know? There's a modest hall and a bedchamber that's even higher than it. Uh, it has no windows. And above the hearth is a broken sword and a shield full of crack paint. And then his grandfather's sigil. A titan's head. Oh, the titan's head. So in your last episode, Ileana mentioned the Radio Westeros theory about Sansa killing Littlefinger. And this is actually where it all started. A long, long time ago. Titan is a giant. So the Baelish sigil is a literal giant's head. And we'll just leave it there until the next chapter. That is so important. And the first time I read that and it sort of, Mm -hmm. the penny dropped for me. I was like, whoa. Well, especially with Arya 8 being, you know, just a handful of rounds before this. Because some of those chapters are also spaced out in this book, just because the the ramping tension towards the end of the book is like the storm finally hits of everything. Uh, So it's just interesting how George layers these chapters near each other to keep your memory on them, too. I think it's so good. It is. And I, you know, the fact that you guys, just as a sort of digression, the lightning round thing is really important because we also do... um, character analysis you know so when you just analyze a character arc sometimes you lose sight of what is a directly you know contiguous to chapters and that's that tends to be really important stuff so good that you include that and you get like a lot of perspective i know especially when we were doing the ned chapters or even as we've seen in these sansa chapters whenever when we get to Tyrion eventually in like 20 years um (laughs) literally you have, we'll be right there with you then. Yeah, you have those characters like appearing in other POVs and you have to take note of like, hey, this character appeared there and how other people perceive them or how they act there is part of their progression. But in reaction to learning that Littlefinger's sigil is a titan, sounds is like, ah, that's fierce. But maybe it's just too fierce for you. And Littlefinger says, yes, it is too fierce for me. And then I think I'm more about the Mockingbird. It's more my style. It's a little more subdued, I guess. Oswell unloads the ship and he brings casks of wine up to the hall. Just like Littlefinger promised, he offers Sansa a fine 
vintage arbor gold to settle her stomach. She prays to keep it down because Peter was being so nice to her. She didn't want to retch on him for his nice behavior. First of all, what kind of idiot gives someone more alcohol when they're feeling nauseous already? But also, Sansa, do it. Just retch all over him. <laughs> just do it. Just vomit all over him. He deserves it. I promise. <laughs> she didn't want to retch on him. Why Maybe not? it's foreshadowing. Oh. Of what she does. I mean, realistically, we have two more books with Littlefinger in it. So, I mean, I don't think he's going to go in the winds of winter, unfortunately. I think we still have, like, one, like, a quarter of a dream of spring until we finally get rid of that MRFer. So, let's just, she's got time. She could puke all over him. He wishes he was a motherfucker. He, I mean, technically was. Get it? Liza. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I was talking about Kat, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> he thinks he was. He thinks he was. I true. Mean, it's a state of being. Yeah, is that what really is it a mindset? Speaking of motherfucker, a mindset? <laughs> being a motherfucker is a mindset. It's a mindset. It's all about <laughs> believing it. <laughs> if you believe it, I mean. He was studying her over his own goblet, his bright gray-green eyes full of, was it amusement or something else? Sansa was not certain. He asks Grizel to bring Sansa something light to eat, possibly the pomegranates and oranges he took from the king, which I love that note because it reminds me of Sandor and Arya's whole, like, didn't you steal anything before you left King's Landing? And that's what Littlefinger took. He took food, which is smart. I mean, that's pretty Littlefinger, you know, that he thought, all right, my best bet looking at this place, this place, this place, I steal food, I'll be good on food. You know, it's Interesting. I'll give him that. I I usually shit on him, but he did remember food's important, especially with winter coming. I should get food. Get food so we don't have to eat mutton. Yeah, absolutely. So I can impress my girlfriend, Sansa Stark. Get away from her. Get a job. Is mutton not good? I thought like, I thought it was like lamb, but I guess, I don't know. Is the sheep too old? It's, yeah, it's, it's sheep and all, but I mean, it's, you know, dried mutton. They have dried salt mutton. It's basically, because in, in old times in general, you know, that's how they pre- preserve food. Right. They preserve meat. They salted meat and they dried it, reconstitute it with some water and make it a little more chewy, or you could just eat it brittle and that was your protein, which I mean, I still, I love beef jerky personally, but. Yeah. I mean, they have a whole 23 other sheep out there. They could kill one of them and have a feast, but anyway. Fresh mutton. I'm sure it's better. Exactly. That's what I'm wondering. I don't know. Sansa requests a bath, and Peter has Kella draw some more water. Littlefinger then turns his attention to sending, setting Sansa's story straight. This is who you are. This is how you're going to disguise yourself uh, before your Aunt Liza comes along. And it is not safe to be Sansa Stark. So you're going to be my natural daughter. Yeah, that's right. Ooh, a bastard. Like, who's scandalous? Scandalous! Which- Settle down, Ashley's. Oh my god, I can't believe you just that. recessed our podcast. This is kind of an obvious ploy on power and exerting it over your captive. While Theon tends to have a more gory and horrific fate in his later chapters, we see this then as well. If you let the abuser make the rules of the game, remove your identity, choose the station of your captives, it's removing this power and agency from them. Littlefinger pushes Stockholm Syndrome hard on Sansa, right? He's implicated her in murder. He's given her a lifeline with nothing but strings attached. And now he's lowering her to not only being his, but his bastard, his garbage spawn, right? Like his throwaway kid. Sansa doesn't need his chains. And she's actually going to learn that probably by the end of the Winds of Winter. Sansa instead 
suggests, but what if I were Catelyn? What if I went by my mother's name? Peter's like, no, nah, that's too obvious, especially when you look exactly like her. So he's like, you can be Elaine, like my mom. Which I love, of course, that parallels Arya's cat in the canals in Feast and joins together one half to one half, right? The sides of the coin, cat slash Elaine, Catalane, Catalan. Mm-hmm. The sun and the moon. Exactly. Yeah, those two. Oh, yeah. Armor and the sword. But also, I think there's a... I'm just going to throw this out there because, you know, every time you find a moment where you can slip in Freud when you're reading a piece of literature, just do it. So, I'm just going to say, Freud. Oh, my God. Sansa's also a little bummed that she has to be lowborn. She's like, but can I be the daughter of a knight in your service? Worse off, she doesn't want to be Littlefinger's bastard. It's an insult. He's upjumped. And he's doing this... Not just because it's a more believable thing, but it gives him control. So, Elaine Stone it is. Her backstory has been chosen. Her mother was a bravosi woman who died giving birth to her. She was the daughter of a merchant prince whom Littlefinger met when he was in charge of Galtown's port. Elaine was given to the faith, but when she bled for the first time, she decided, yeah, she didn't want to be a septa after all. So she wrote to Littlefinger, and now here she is. On the fingers. First off, really complicated backstory. Okay, like, Bravosi woman died giving birth to her. She was the daughter of a merchant prince. But just enough that Sansa's going to eat that crap up, right? Like, okay, well, the daughter of a merchant prince. Okay, sure, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, But second off, kind of unrealistic. Like, that's what makes you wake up and go, I don't want to live in the convent forever. You wake up and you go, I had my period. I should call my father and say I want to live with him in his court. I don't want to sell my maidenhood away to the gods. Like, that makes me wake up and just say, I don't want to live. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't have any other plans than that. I just want to, like, lay there and die. I don't think yeah. I want to go traverse across the nation to go meet my father, who's a great lord now. Yeah, no. <laughs> you can tell, like, a man wrote this, but... A man wrote this in story as well. No, exactly. It's for both. Yeah. For both. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. IRL, both. <laughs> oh, it's a little, yeah. it's a, a little involved. I don't know. Something to keep in mind, though, from here until Sansa's eventual reveal that we will be covering when The Winds of Winter comes out next week, obviously. <laughs> I <laughs> thought we'd all laugh. Have uh, a good laugh. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> I tried. So Sansa's whole entire thing now is Elaine is supposed to have been hidden away in an abbey her entire life. She has to behave as such to not draw attention. And then Littlefinger asks Sansa, do you like games? And then Cotton offers her some pomegranates. He's been asking her if he likes games for like the past two chapters. Like, just let it go. Two years? What are you talking about? Yeah, that's true. Past two years. Do you like games? Do you do like, like games? games? Sansa, the Game oh, of Thrones. <laughs> she politely declines. She's like, no, thank you. I think I'll have a pair. Said it's easier and neater to eat. And of course, it's major Persephone. Uh, symbolism in this, right? We all know it. It's major Persephone symbolism. So as the tale goes, Persephone gets sucked into the underworld, stolen away by Hades. Demeter does everything in her power to find her daughter, but doesn't quite find her. She convinces the other gods to help rescue Persephone from the underworld, but it is too late. Persephone has already accepted the fruit offered from Hades in the underworld. Specifically, that fruit in the myth was pomegranate. The accord is struck that Persephone must live half the year below, married to Hades, and the other half of the year she can spend above in the springtime. 
Now, all tales of captive princesses and damsels in distress have their root in this story of Persephone. And the princess in the tower motif, specifically, is very strong with Sansa. I think you guys mentioned it in your last episode, if I remember correctly. In this here, even though she's moving literally from one tower to another, but here in this scene... Sansa rejects the pomegranate. Now, pears have a much gentler symbolism. They can symbolize a lot of different things like long life or affection between friends or the separation of friends, whatever. They, they're they not as symbolically fraught as a pomegranate, which I think indicates that her periods of captivity are not going to be endlessly cyclical like poor old Persephone. Sansa is going to consciously break the cycle. Yeah, Exactly. Sansa declining the fruit is a huge gesture. It's her saying no thank you to Littlefinger, and she's definitely going to break that cycle and outwit Hades and go home. So, you know, actually I wrote about this um, years ago for originally for the Pond Player Threads, and it's on my personal blog, a kind of Arthurian interpretation of Sansa Stark, in which I really talked about how Sansa's story arc is that princess in the tower and how she's going from you know the tower of the hand to magor's hold fast she's gonna alight after this chapter at the maiden's tower in the eerie and from there she's going to emerge during her final chapter and feast sansa spends the final months of her girlhood basically in a cage she's called little bird she's a caged bird and her cage is represented by this succession of towers. So that's the princess and the tower motif. Her periods of controlled release, which we see little by little in King's Landing while she's uh, married to Tyrion. And a little bit when she's in the Vale. And then finally at the end of Feast are somewhat stagnant. But they're basically... They represent the fruition of growth. So every time she gets out of one of these towers, you see that she's grown a little bit in her arc. So we can only just hope that her growth is going to be somewhat amazing by the time we see her again in Winds of Winter. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely. It's really in Feast we get that line from her, you know, that Sansa Stark went up the mountain, but Elaine's stone is coming down. And I think that says there's going to be a big transformation because... In a way, getting to lose that identity of Sansa Stark means she gets to she gets to shed this prisoner's skin, right? She gets to be bastard brave. That was a different girl, you know. That girl was bastard brave, and that's what she gets to be for a little bit. And I think that helps her find that route home. Exactly. Eventually, find your way back to being a Stark. Littlefinger tells Sansa that, "Oh, you must miss your father terribly," but in King's Landing. There are two types of people. There are players and pieces. Or pawns and players, Mm. if you will. Sansa asks, "Uh, was I a piece? Littlefinger says, yes, but don't let that trouble you. You're still half a child. Every man's a piece to start with, and every maid as well. Even some who think they are players. He ate another seed. Cersei, for one, she thinks herself sly, but in truth she's utterly predictable. Her strength rests on her beauty, birth, and riches. Only the first of those is truly her own, and it will soon desert her. I pity her, then. She wants power, but has no notion what to do with it when she gets it. Everyone wants something, Elaine. And when you know what a man wants, you know who he is, and how to move him. 
<laughs> oh my god. So he just gave her the key to his own destruction right there, didn't he? Because once she figures out that he wants her, she's going to start using that against him. And that's going to happen pretty quickly. I mean, these are all the tools she's learned, right? I mean, you got Cersei telling her a woman's weapon, Sansa, you know, tears are not the only woman's weapon. You have Liza being all like, oh, you're so pretty and you think you're great. Like, she knows what she has and she's going to finally have that against him, especially when he's been standing around implicating himself in her life, going, well, I did this and I killed this and I did this to this person. And oh, aren't I clever, Sansa? Don't you love me? I always laugh at these people that have this idea that Littlefinger is the greatest player of the game and he's going to be the king of everything at the end. He's going to be the last man standing because... Littlefinger's arc is only continued because Sansa's is written to be his downfall. And we get handed some of those major clues in these couple chapters that we're reading. They all kind of wind together with that Arya 8 chapter we talked about with the Ghost of High Heart's prophecy. Sansa's entire arc and story revolves directly around politics. She's always been surrounded by it. Bran's arc is magic, John is the hero, Arya's the assassin or whatever. I don't know what they're going to do, you know, whatever. But Sansa, of course, is kind of the political brains of the operation. She and Bran dream and everyone else does the execution, but it's been politics from the start from her. She, with the whole almost marrying the king thing, keeping her head in the viper pit of King's Landing, and now navigating the Eyrie with her own new face to wear. Her arc doesn't end with her dead or with her married to Aerie the heir. It ends with her retaking her own womanhood, life, and destiny, defeating her political opponents, and also at the same time helping to bind the kingdoms back together. And so Sansa goes on to ask for confirmation that he was pulling the strings for Dantos the entire time, which he gives her. He tells her that Dantos had no clue about the poison, though. He was just a pawn who had had his mission bestowed upon him. He tells her that the Mockingbird isn't friendless, though it may seem that way. And he calls Oswell up for them and asks Sansa who she sees. Hey, guys. Knock, knock. <laughs> Who's there? Oswell. Oswell who? Oswell went. Anyways, I'll die on this hill. Not <laughs> 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 a hill. You guys, it's Oswell Kettleblack went. It's the Oswell Kettle calling the went black. It's the it's Oswell it's Oswell Kettleblack. You guys, the guy with three sons who came out of nowhere. Interesting because there are four lost males from the house went line, uh, and he arrived at King's Landing. Isn't that funny? Those three sons whose names shall never be remembered. <laughs> I cannot <laughs> remember them. Any of us. Oz 1, Oz 2, Oz 3, or Kingsguard, City Watch, and Boy Toy. Honestly, that's pretty impressive, though, when you uh, yeah. gave us this knowledge of 1, 2, 3, Kingsguard, City Watch, Boy Toy. I was like, oh, yeah, because I struggle to remember even what they have. I think that scene, uh, yeah. which we talked about above very, very briefly in our lightning round with Jamie is so interesting with them in the Kingsguard room. And it's something when we eventually get to Jamie someday in the next 18 years, we'll talk about probably, I'm sure, more. But uh, <laughs> that that's a really cool scene and really gives them a little bit of character. I feel like maybe if me and Eliana study that just enough, we might be able to differentiate between the three. If we study the kettle blacks, aren't there like other things that I need to, I don't know, focus on? Look, we're bringing just kettle just... back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you other Kingsguard don't know how to act. Yeah. Yeah. Take them to the bridge. 
Uh, <laughs> and we get this interesting conversation. Tell me, Elaine, which is more dangerous? The dagger brandished by an enemy or the hidden one pressed to your back by someone you never even see? The hidden dagger. There's a clever girl. Stay away from her. God. I couldn't even, like, finish that. That was gross. I was no. like, I had to say that out loud. You guys heard me say that. Uh, Littlefinger does tell her that the Kettle Blacks, turns out, were in his employ the whole time. It was me the whole time. Uh, and also Tyrion's employ. They were bought and paid for by Littlefinger, and they were those three hidden daggers perfectly placed. And, I mean, the daggers aren't always really figurative. Yes, we have the Kettle Blacks. And as illuminating as this is for Peter's super clever strategy, it's also calling back of course, to what he did to Ned in King's Landing uh, by slowly driving Ned to his death by uh, playing him the whole time and then revealing, oh, I'm the dagger and bringing it to next to Ned's neck. What a jerk. <laughs> the best part about this line is Sansa's going to be the one with the daggers in the end, right? The hidden daggers. It's, it's, it's such a good art. Uh, I think it's interesting to consider her three daggers hiding in the dark, right? It could be any amount of people, but I think especially we should pay attention to Jane Poole, obviously sold into sex slavery uh, by Littlefinger and Cersei, Sandor Clegane in the throne room when Peter betrayed her dad, and the Royces, Nestor has Randa pushing and investigating already. I couldn't agree more, especially those first two. They have some very damning information. Should Sansa have a reunion? If either one of them, trouble. Yeah, I mean, she's got him condemned in the veil between Nestor and Bronzion, who saw her in 295 AC, just a handful of years before Asas. Uh, I mean, you also look at, with the whole Arya, fake Arya plot, there's Valiant Ned's precious little girls. I mean, that's she's in the veil, a place where her dad grew up. These are the people that knew her dad. They knew Robert. She was betrothed to Joffrey Baratheon. You know, she was... She's Ned's eldest daughter. This is a big deal that she's in the Vale, and these people will know who she is. And if the, I'm not mistaken, Bronze Yawn Royce's line, right? They have some blood ties to House Stark. Yes, we remember. <clears throat> we re- yeah. we do remember. I love those. Those <laughs> are probably some of my favorite house words. We remember magic rooms. Yeah, they're yeah. interesting. Sansa tries to piece together the rest of Joffrey's murder. She thinks it was one of the Kettleblacks who poisoned him, but Littlefinger, of course, does not. He tilted his chin back and squeezed the blood orange so the juice ran down into his mouth. I love the juice, but I loathe the sticky <laughs> fingers, he complained, wiping his hands. Clean hands, Sansa. Whatever you do, make certain your hands are clean. Yeah, I'm doing this as a public service to you guys, so you should be thankful right now that you didn't have to do that because it hurts me. Like, I think I just took two years off my life reading a little finger line out loud. I'm going to need a shower after this. I need a shower right now. Gross. Clean bodies, everyone. Whatever you do, make certain certain your bodies are clean. They're right. Um, But yeah, combining that idea of the clean hands with the blood oranges, it really plays well with the rest of how this series goes. Uh, The blood orange acts as a symbol in a lot of A Song of Ice and Fire. Um... Adam Feldman on the Miranese blot discusses that symbolism of blood oranges, especially as they manifest in Doran Martell's storyline. Uh, the, you see that the overripe 
blood oranges, they plop on the ground off the tree, and it symbolizes that war is approaching, as is this vengeance that the Martels have been planning for years. And of course, when fruit splats on the ground, it is messy, and like the sticky juices, the blood of innocents are going to spill with war on the horizon for Westeros. And I think uh, combined with this scene of Littlefinger, it creates this question of how do you keep your hands clean of the war when the blood of innocence is at stake, especially as we see that war is also at the doors of the veil. Or when, if someone wants to seek vengeance, which Sansa presumably might after everything that's happened. God, all those kids in the water gardens are going to die. Save the naked babies. All dead. All of them. You thinking about that? Just me? Okay. Yeah. I think about it sometimes. I think about it all the time. It's so sad. Littlefinger jogs Sansa's memory while she's trying to figure everything out that someone played with her hairnet at the dinner. It was Olena Tyrell. Sansa couldn't believe that Olena would do that. She wanted her to marry Willis to be her granddaughter-in-law. But of course, the penny drops. They weren't your friends, Sansa. That's why the chapters in the beginning of A Storm of Swords serve to build up this very subtle betrayal. We see it at her wedding to Tyrion as well. The Tyrells want nothing to do with Sansa Stark. Her claim's off the table, and so is their friendship. Peter, though, says that Sansa should be grateful she was spared of the pious and gentle Willis. I don't know. He seemed nice. Yeah, he seemed okay. Um, I mean, he was a Tyrell, but... Currently, the Tyrells are adults, according to Fire and Blood. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah. I mean, fire and blood, Maester killed Bane. I think he knows what he's talking about because I too have been might. known to say the Tyrells are dolts. The Tyrells are dolts. But Willis seemed nice. A nice dolt. Yeah. Decent sort. She likes dogs. What else can you want from someone, you know? When Littlefinger went to Highgarden, he praised Joffrey to the Tyrells, but then he also low key had uh, these spreading of evil rumors about Joffrey's disposition, and he planted, he inception-ed the idea of Loras joining the Kingsguard. Yeah, and if you recall, Sansa predicted part of this in her first A Storm of Swords chapter, but she didn't predict what was going to happen because of it. She only got halfway in. She thought Loras has a temper to rival Jaime's, and the Tyrells are not going to stand for Joffrey's nature, which she wasn't wrong with either of these thoughts. Oh, for sure. And yeah, she notices these things because, as we say, Sansa is smart. Earlier, we were introduced, of course, to Littlefinger's sigil being the Mockingbird. And you can really see how that comes into the play in the story here and how apt it is for him. As I'm sure many of you know from the Hunger Games, the Mockingbird, which was which was paired with what was it, the Blue Jay or something, uh, knows how to mimic the songs and calls of other birds. And this is very much how... Littlefinger plants that idea of Loras joining the Kingsguard into the Tyrells. Like, we, the quote from the chapter is, But men in my party supplied grisly tales about how the mob had killed Sir Preston Greenfield and raped the Lady Lawless and slipped a few silvers to Lord Tyrell's army of singers to sing of Ryan, Redwine, Sirwin of the Mirror Shield, and Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight. A harp can be as dangerous as a sword in the right hands. Which is interesting considering the language of army of singers but Littlefinger uses songs same way as the mockingbird does to lure others into his plans i mean mockingbirds don't really do anything that insidious they're just birds that copy other birds for like i don't know sex 
bird sex. Uh, but we just discussed how Sansa uses... We just discussed how Littlefinger tells Sansa to use people's desires against them. And he's so good at reflecting those desires back to them, and he's applying those in order to get what he wants. He uses songs to plant those ideas in others. Uh, and as we see with Liza um, and Nestor Royce, Littlefinger's going to mimic another bird, the falcon, by using its power. But again, going back to this idea of the harp as being as dangerous as the sword and Littlefinger being that mockingbird in a story that's very much about Sansa, little bird, singing sweet songs and being in the nest of the falcon, the eerie. Again, in a story that's called A Song of Ice and Fire, this plays further with this theme about songs and dreams and Sansa's storyline because even in our own world, like that's why we're all here for this story. That's why we love stories and TV shows and books. Uh, the songs and the dreams that we love, I mean, they reflect, they shape, and inspire our own hopes and desires for ourselves, for the world that we have. We aspire to be like our heroes, and we learn how to navigate the world through warnings from stories where things go awry. Monologues. Eliana, that was really beautiful. That was a great monologue. Yeah. Well, it was very good. Song of Ice and Fire was inside of us the whole time. Oh my god. <laughs> it was inside of us the whole time. <sighs> God, I'm crying. So Littlefinger says Marjorie will wed Tommen soon enough, and the alliance between Highgarden and Casterly Rock will be saved for a time. Sansa thinks about how she liked Marjorie and her grandmother, but thinking about her new identity, Elaine Stone, Elaine has no husband, no claim, and is a bastard. So this makes Sansa kind of happy, I guess. She thinks about how she can start over now. All new. Yeah, she's she's the optimist, man. She's like, maybe this won't suck. Ha 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 Smile, looks into the camera. This is going to suck, isn't it? Like, that's, she knows. She knows. <laughs> I mean, she's looking at Marjorie just getting passed off, kind of for the same reason, claim, for her claim, only it's it's inverted. But she's just getting yeah. passed from one dude to another, and Sansa's like, God. <sighs> Queen basketball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're a sports podcast now, sports. by the way. Sports of Ice and Fire. Does no one else? Yeah. We could just, that's a great Twitter account. Like, you could just, like, post tourney results like, all day long. Yeah, and then you can be like, I don't know, X versus X. Yeah, like, one this many tilts versus this many. Sansa spends eight days waiting for her aunt to arrive, hanging out with Brian's old dog. Littlefinger gives her the tour and shows her some rocks where the Andals might have landed once. He shows her where his small folk live, and he tells her this story, which this kind of grabbed me, this read-around. Uh, he tells her a story of a hermit seer that used to live here and proclaimed that Peter would do great things for one cup of wine as payment. Interesting. I, I just never really paid attention to that until now. That There was some seer that lived in the caves that he, you know... His dad took him to, and they gave him a cup of wine. He was like, Peter's going to be great. Exactly. But unlike other people, <coughs> Cersei, he places no weight on this prophecy, he says. But it still comes true, doesn't it, Sansa? I mean, kind of, you know. His arc is definitely just a teensy bit more impressive than Baelish's of yore. Right, Sansa? Yeah, Right, right. Elbow, elbow. I don't know. I wonder if he does definitely believe it. You know, if that's like his sense of upjumped, like, well, I was meant for great things. It sounds a bit like, I don't know. It does sound like Peter to, you know, lie 
to Sansa or to anyone to make himself seem cooler. Mm. So, yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. I mean, if he really didn't care, he would have forgotten by now, right? Yeah. Why bring it up if it was like? Yeah. Liza then arrives the afternoon of the eighth day with a humble retinue. She has three maids, a septon, very important, and a handsome singer, along with a dozen household knights. She's a little more aged and sagging, and she's wearing a velvet jeweled dress and lots of makeup. I got a Queen Elizabeth I vibe here. I don't know about you guys. The, just the description. The old pathetic Queen Elizabeth I that just needed the adoration of all the handsome young men around her. Hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's what, like, she's been keeping Marillion around since Cat left. Yeah. Like, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. It's gross. Yeah. Liza immediately wants to know what gifts Peter has brought her, but all he offers her is his natural daughter, Elaine. <laughs> he, <laughs> what a present. Surprise! Right? Hey, we're getting married. <laughs> Which, crazy parallels to Catelyn, right? I mean, Cat came home, Ned walks in with a bastard, so there you go, there's a little something. Mm-hmm. He tells her he's bringing her to the Eyrie, and she starts to get pretty pissed at him, but she calms down the moment Littlefinger gives her a little semblance of affection. Liza complains to Littlefinger that, oh, I've been fending off all of these suitors, such as Hunter and Corbray and Royce. They've all been trying to wed me and my son, and but I've been waiting for you, Peter. And it gives me this vibe of Penelope waiting for Odysseus in the Odyssey, yeah. with like a dark mirror of it, especially with like, I don't know, the old servant and the old dog and shit. Liza wants to marry Peter right this instant, but Peter wants to wait and marry in the Vale. Which, of course, that would be a sign of validity for Peter with the whole court present. But, alas, Liza throws a tantrum, so married they get. There's dancing, there's singing, there's food. Sansa ends up dancing with some young knights, even. But this leads to the bedding, which is, of course, extremely awkward. Sansa ends up having to help undress Peter with Liza's three maids, which later on leads to Liza putting on a tremendous show in bed. Ew. <laughs> Peter! Peter! This is yeah. just, oh my god. Cringe. This is. <laughs> That's love. That's the best marriage right there. Yeah. It's gross. This series is known more for food porn than bedroom porn, and um, meaning that I a lot of the bedroom scenes are not really that good. Some of them are pretty laughable, and this is about the worst, my humble opinion. Yeah, Mirish Swamp. Even though we're not really in the bedroom, just like being below the bedroom is... is... Secondhand embarrassment. Oh, God. Cringy. Wait, on this line of thought, something that bearded me out in Fire and Blood was how, what, everyone was talking about how everyone could hear in, in King's Landing or the Red Keep could hear Balon and Alyssa, and I'm like, they're like teenagers, and the, their parents can just hear them? I mean, I guess they were married, but still, like... I guess that's what the parents wanted. Fair point, I guess. At least they liked each other. They wanted Targ babies. So weird. Maybe this is just normal, I guess, for Westeros. I'm going to mount him again tomorrow. Like, damn, girl, okay. I guess, you know, in the day, people lived all in the same room, you know? Like, what did people do? Families slept in the same bed. How did they have more kids? I suppose they were all just... Grinding on each other. Oh, gross. (laughs) I'm so glad I live in a... Eight room house, and everyone has their own bedroom or whatever. <laughs> whatever, close enough. <laughs> However many yes. rooms, there's enough rooms. Yes, <laughs> we don't have to do that. 
Yeah, you'd think so that you this... don't hear them yelling around the keep. Oh you'd think that the keep and the stones would be better insulation, but what if it actually just makes the sound louder? What if it echoes? Oh no, you it know does. How... It's just it, it travels. Echoes. Yeah. Bounces. Oh, sound bounces uh... off of stone, Eliana. Oh my god. Oh, yeah, off the red a... keep. They call it red for another reason. <laughs> bounces. The sound bounces off of a laid stone. Because of sex. Um. Who walks to the hall after the bedding, thinking of Loris and Sander. She wondered what had become of Sander Clegane. Did he know that they'd kill Joffrey? Would he care? He had been this prince's sworn sword for years. Aww, they think about each other, you guys. Yeah, yeah, they do. I mean, it could be simultaneous. I think this is now my headcanon. They're looking up at the same stars, thinking about each other. Ah. Oh, think about Sandor's burnt little mouse face. He'd be a Aww. rat instead. <laughs> this would be cute, yeah. I feel like the Arya chapter that comes a little bit after this frames it as a simultaneous, as good as simultaneous, with them learning that Sansa mm-hmm. killed the king with a spell and Sandor being all good for her. You know, it was kind of sweet. <laughs> she's she's thinking about him though while she's listening to sex stuff. I'm just putting that out there. And then, of course, we're going to get into a dream mm-hmm. in a little bit. But uh, i just just putting that out there. It's it's real. You know, it's real. She ruffles Brian's hound's fur, and she calls it a sad old hound. And she looks across at the remnants of the party. And, of course, here comes Marillion, the up-jumped, perverted singer. He tries to bang Sansa. He's all like, let's go, let's go. I want to get with you. And she's like, yeah, I'm kind of offended. And... Lothar Brune comes in the nick of time as he starts to kind of put himself on her. Sansa heard the soft sound of steel on leather. Singer, a rough voice said, best go if you want to sing again. The light was dim, but she saw a faint glimmer of a blade. The singer saw it too. Find your own wench! (laughs) The knife flashed and he cried out, you cut me! I'll do worse if you don't go. And quick as that, Marillion was gone. The other remained, looming over Sansa in the darkness. Lord Peter said, watch out for you. It was Lothar Brune's voice, she realized, not the hounds. No, how, how could it be? Of course it had to be Lothar. I'm going to be real sad again. Lothar Brune fucks this all up for me. You, you love him. I, I do kind of like him. I mean, we did base a foundation of our podcast on the fact that why would you choose Jorah when Lothar Brune was right there? Well, he gives me a Brown Ben Plum vibe, so I don't know. I also quite like Brown Ben Plum. He let me down, but he's still, at least still interesting. I like him too, but I just I don't yeah. have good hope. I don't have. What do you think? Do you think he'll? Well, I think it could just be as simple. He's going to turn on Littlefinger, but whatever he does, I think it's going to be detrimental to himself. And I guess that's that's kind of the vibe I get because that's mm-hmm. what I think about Brown Ben Plum. Whatever he does, and I have thoughts mm-hmm. about that. Uh, it's gonna be detrimental to himself oh, yeah. in the end. Yeah, so. I mean, I could see Lothar Brune trying to stick up for himself against Littlefinger, or stick up for Littlefinger's a bad guy, and then Littlefinger's striking him down. I could see that. I hope that doesn't happen. He's really, he's been with us since that first book, you know, when he was just uh, <clears throat> Lothar Brune, not Sir Lothar Brune, and then Clash, and then he becomes a Sir, and but I guess if it goes like that, it wouldn't be letting you down. That's you true. Know? It's an arc, then. I agree. At, at least if he does that, yeah, he's going to still be sticking to 
being great. I, it would let me down more if yeah. he did the yeah, now opposite. Now he lives, he's just a scumbag. Well, unless he lives and is like yeah. great, but like you know. Well, Sansa has a weird dream after she finally gets to bed later way on. It's a total coming-of-age sex dream, and it ends with the Hound, because Sansan's real, Eliana. Oh, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Is it ever? That night, Sansa scarcely slept at all, but tossed and turned just as she had aboard the Merlin King. She dreamt of Joffrey dying, but as he clawed at his throat and the blood ran across his fingers, she saw with horror that it was her brother Rob, and she dreamed of her wedding night, too, of Tyrion's eyes devouring her as she undressed. Only then, he was bigger than Tyrion had any right to be, and when he climbed into the bed, his face was scarred only on one side. I'll have a song from you, he rasped, and Sansa woke and found the old blind dog beside her once again. I wish that you were lady, she said. (sighs) What a goddamn quote, right? I wish that you were lady, a wolf, a dog. The hound? Give the girl a dog. <laughs> She'll be happier oh, for it. Oh, God. Oh. <laughs> fans only get this. <laughs> I do, I love the way, like, George shows this transformation. It reminds me of how he does it with Daenerys in Game of Thrones with the shadows, with the blood magic. Uh, like, how he shows just these, like, shapes and, you know, from from Rob uh, transforming from Joffrey to Rob and from Tyrion in her wedding bed transforming to Sandor in her wedding bed. And of course, as Lady Gwyn definitely is on the train of with the cloaking mm-hmm. that has taken place. Yes. Our, our, our cloaking marriage expert, Lady Gwyn, <laughs> that we invited on this panel for the sudden Sansan portion of this episode. <laughs> You guys covered it really well in in the last episode. Um, I really hoped we were doing it justice. It was hard to do it because I really just wanted to wait for you to do it instead. Because I'm like, man, it's her it's her beautiful masterpiece that she did really well. It's my love, so. my baby. <laughs> um, you know, I think uh, she's got the cloak. She thinks about this cloak a lot. The cloak is so symbolic. Like you were just saying you know the marriage cloak it, it symbolizes protection and obviously the first time she huddled up under sander's cloak during the black water it was for protection and then you know if the theory is true she wore it for protection when she fled from king's landing mm. and she has in the pocket of that cloak i like to point out the uh Chekhov's hairnet. Uh, so you never know what's gonna what the cloak could protect her from in future. So I love that we might learn more about that in the Winds of Winter. It could come back. I don't think things ever go away. So <laughs> like that. So probably not because we there's there's still two books left. So. <laughs> <laughs> so so for Christmas, when we're all unwrapping, if we celebrate Christmas, winds of winter, under our Christmas trees, you know. Yeah, keep that in mind as you go through all the chapters. Hopefully you're reading the Sansa chapters first, <laughs> because you're going to have to catch up as we go through it on the podcast. I mean, you could read the Sansa, one of the Sansa chapters first already. Actually, we are going to be doing that Sansa chapter, uh, all jokes aside, since The Winds of Winter is not coming out this week or next week or the week after yet. Damn it. Isn't, Isn't it? it? <laughs> Damn it. 
All jokes aside, we will be doing a Wins a Winner Elaine 1 episode and talk about Sansa's future from the Wins a Winner on. Uh, sometime, I believe, next month, we're going to take a break from our fire and bloodness just to keep it Sansa because we also will be transitioning into a new point of view for February. Uh, stay tuned to hear more about that. No spoilers. So in the morning, Liza and Peter get breakfast-ish in bed and they call for Sansa. Outside of the chamber, Peter says that your aunt wants you and Sansa's like, great, this is fun. This is a fun time for me. It's like you guys just banged all night. I heard it. This is fun. Not all right. at all awkward. Going in. Probably smells Going like in. it. I'm surprised we don't talk about how it smells like it. Anyways. <laughs> he's obviously told Liza already she's Kat's daughter and Liza regards her as such when she comes in. She questions her on her marriage to Tyrion and Sansa tells her the truth of it. She tells Sansa she has to darken her hair color with dye and not to call Liza her aunt. Liza has kept the veil out of the war thus far, and Sansa's identity would, and obviously eventually will, only complicate things. And then we launch into Liza's very slightly temperamental mood change. It's only slight, because you know Liza being a telly, she's like the moon of Aaron, ever-changing. That's who she is as a person. She tells Sansa about the horrors that she has suffered. Her stillbirths with John Aaron, John Aaron's awful breath. Uh. Good thing Peter smells like mint, I guess. How she had to see Peter every day at court, but pretend to be loyal to her husband. She then shifts the conversation to Sansa's mom. She gives a speech on how we are alone now as women in the world and we must be brave together. And then she grabs Sansa's wrist and tells her, You have to be honest with me and tell me, are you pregnant with Tyrion's kid? She makes it like a huge thing, too. She's like, I'm. you have to be honest with me. Don't lie to me. I'll know if you lie. Like, do you think... Liza was planning to abort it if it was a thing, like hers was done. Like that kind of psychotic, now you must truly suffer like I have thing that we see these adults project onto the kids, like Cersei last couple chapters. Oh yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, if being a Stark complicates things for her, which she's already making very clear, imagine having a Stark with a Lannister baby on her hands and uh, definitely would take those steps. Drink this. Bloop, bloop. Here. Drink this. Yeah. yeah. Good luck. Yeah. I think Sansa would at least be a little smarter, and she'd at least know what it was. Yeah. Eliza. Ugh. Sansa pleads that she's not with child. She chooses the words then that she says about Tyrion very carefully. She does not try to reason with her that he was kind, like she's thinking of how he was. She tells Liza he preferred the company of sex workers. This is such a great point about Sansa. She was not only perceiving how her aunt feels about Tyrion, obviously highly negative, but she shows some real astuteness at playing people here. Littlefinger asked her if she likes to play games, and she wasn't so sure. But we see here that she's going to be really good at it because she totally plays Lysa with this sex worker thing. Also, she has to be good at it to, like, live. So it's good she's getting on the bandwagon now. Good girl. Yeah. It's a it's another good lie because it's one of those that... Littlefinger says this right later on, where uh, good lies have a little seed of truth in it. And there is a seed of truth in it regarding that about Tyrion. 
And so Liza says, oh, that doesn't surprise me. She says Tyrion had a low cunning, and she says that he was basically a Garbo person and that she should have killed him when she could. But uh, my sister, that idiot, let her go, and Bronn proved their innocence, and then Catelyn also made off with Brynden, Blackfish. It's kind of sad. We're going to get into this next chapter, obviously, as we're nearing the end here, but the Blackfish went with Liza originally because... He knew Liza's past. He knew what had happened to her, and he wanted to protect her, and he had no place at River Run for himself anymore either. So kind of a bummer, especially as it all unfolds, especially with her psychosis next chapter. So Liza says now the mountain clans have grown wilder, but she's planning on naming Peter Lord Protector of the Vale, and being a well-known mighty warrior, she knows he's going to set it all straight. (laughs) And she says, I knew that boy Joffrey. He used to call my Robert cruel names, and once he slapped him with a wooden sword. <laughs> I can't tell you who I would favor in that fight. <laughs> a man will tell you poison is dishonorable, but a woman's honor is different. The mother shaped us to protect our children, and our only dishonor is in failure. You'll know that when you have a child. Hey, do you think Liza might have poisoned someone? I mean... Do you think she, like, knows about poison? Maybe. What could they be getting at here? I don't know. Something. Sansa is all like, okay, when I have a baby, uh, that'd be cool, but why? And Liza's like, oh, well, you want a kid to love forever. It's really good, because your life sucks otherwise. So Liza pushes Matchmaker, and all of a sudden, in her, like, ranting, decides Sansa and Sweet Robin, Robert Aaron, would be an excellent couple... He's of noble great birth, and you should marry him. And Sansa's like, ha ha ha, he sounds great. I've never met him. He's emotionally stunted. Come on down. Let's get married. Like, next. What's that? The Ariana Grande thank, song? Thank, thank you, next. Thank you, next. <laughs> thank you, next. Next husband, I guess. One one taught me patience. Someone give her a break. Give her a break. There is this line there right after this. It goes, The thought made Sansa weary. All she knew of Robert Aaron was that he was a little boy and sickly. It's not me she wants her son to marry. It is my claim. No one will ever marry me for love. Oh, poor Aww. Sansa. So here we are. It's a heartbreaking line. It's so sad. And less than 12 hours after her little moment of hope there that someone here with some family that might love her shattered hope is shattered her aunt wants her claim although she then goes on to take great pains to let Sansa know exactly how little her claim is worth just in case she gets any ideas about the value that she's bringing to this equation This goes right back to Littlefinger with his emotional manipulation of Sansa and that abusive nature of taking, you know, your captives' rights away, taking their power away, and Liza is totally implicit in that. Sansa has a key to a lot of the kingdoms right now, not all necessarily by blood, but right now she's Lady Lannister. She's a princess of the North. She has a claim on River Run and knock out the Goldtown errands and Airy the Air. She could probably topple the Eyrie into devoting themselves to the North's kingdom instead of the South's. Nudge. Liza's not very good at negging, apparently. <laughs> She's pretty bad at it. Of Robert Aaron, Liza says, He will be a great man, Elaine. The seed is strong. 
my lord husband said before he died. His last words, the gods sometimes let us glimpse the future as we lay dying. I see no reason why you should not be wed as soon as we know that your Lannister husband is dead. A secret wedding, to be sure. The lord of the Eyrie could scarcely be thought to have married a bastard. That would not be fitting. The ravens should bring us word from King's Landing once the imps had rolls. You and Robert can be wed the next day. Won't that be joyous? It will be good for him to have a little companion. <laughs> it's interesting that we went through all of Ned's chapters together, right? And Ned, of course, we learned the seed as strong as John Aaron's last words to end up meaning... The Baratheon seed is strong. It has nothing to do with him. It's all about the kids with the dark hair. And of course, it overarches and kind of reaches around the seed is strong with Jon Snow versus Lyanna and Rhaegar's blood. But Liza, of course, took the seed is strong to mean her son has strong seed. His dad said so, which completely not, completely missed the point blank. Like, not even, not even a little. <laughs> Poor Liza. Congratulations, Liza tells her. You now are a full-time babysitter of a crying little boy who you're going to have to read to, kiss, suck up to, and overall be obedient to. She says, he is the lord of the Eyrie. After all, you must never forget that. You're well born, and the Starks of Winterfell were always proud, but Winterfell has fallen, and you are really just a beggar now, so put that pride aside. Gratitude will better become you in your present circumstances. Yes, and obedience. My son will have a grateful and obedient wife. Good lord, what a nightmare. Oh, my god. Worst mother-in-law. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> yes. Good thing we're gonna get that out of the way soon. Woo! Grateful and yeah. obedient. She's going on a long trip. <laughs> <laughs> Pack your bags. Oh. Pack your bags, Lysa. You guys, that was a dense chapter. Let's get into it. We uh, we did it. We did. Woo. The chapter's over. We had a second to breathe. Let's jump into our lightning round because we have a big chapter ahead of us. We are hitting this end of the book, you guys. And when I say end of the book, oh I mean end of the book. Sansa is the second to last chapter of the end of the book. So, of course... Uh, as the end of this book comes rushing at us, it's a weird pace, right? There's a good handful of chapters in between both of these Sansa chapters to keep that, uh, that anticipation itching. First, we have John 9. Jon Snow is marked as a traitor by his fellow Night's Watchmen. Tyrion 10. Oberyn talks about Tyrion's future, but by chapter's end, it's looking pretty bleak. Daenerys 6. Danny finds that her men have been lying to her. She decides to rule as queen in marine. Jamie 9. After working hard all day, Jamie comes home to deal with some family drama. Later, he ends up sending Brienne on a mission to defend his honor and protect Sansa Stark because he's too busy being on a redemption arc to go do it himself. What? Who said that? Who said that? Who said that? <laughs> It's not a redemption. Humanization arc. John 10. John is sent to parlay with Mance because the rest of the Night's Watch are busy being big old chickens. But the parlay is interrupted by <gasps> Stannis Baratheon. Arya 13. Is there silver? Gems? Is there food? Where is Lord Beric? 
Where did he go? How many men were with him? How many knights? How many bowmen? How many? How many? How many? How many? How many? Is there gold in the village? I'm glad you took that one by the reins there, because I was like, that's Whoa. the only way I could describe that chapter, right? Like, Holy wow. Dense, epic chapter. How many? How many? How many? How many? And like, just needle, and just... <sighs> My it's daughter. a lot. It's so much. Samwell Thor. Sam is pleased to meet up with John again, but now he has to figure out what to do with Gilly. He ponders if there can be honor in a lie as Jano Slint gains more votes to become Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. John 11. Stannis gives John an offer he's dreamed of since childhood. Pledge to Stannis and John can rise as Lord of Winterfell. Tyrion 11. Jamie frees his brother and long-kept secrets eventually revealing that Tywin Lannister does not, in fact, shit gold. Samwell 5. This false sword isn't heating up, but this election is. Sam speaks with some of the candidates, two to be exact, to try and prop up one other. John 12. John. The other candidate was John. And he was. Sure was, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Tampering in elections. What a... Wow. I know. Relevant lately. Oh boy. We are Who would do it. that? Oh boy. <laughs> wow. Without further ado, that brings us to a much shorter chapter, but not at all less action packed. This is the chapter, Sansa 7. And in Sansa 7, which I hope that when you guys read this chapter, you listen to Winter by Tori Amos because that's literally the only way to listen to something while reading this chapter. It is very soft and wintry and very sad and Sansa Stark is my daughter, and someone should hug her. Like, every day, she just deserves a hug. Someone should let her finish her blunt. Anyways, a dream of winter and home lingers in the air as Sansa builds a castle of snow in the Eyrie. The dream and the snow castle come shattering down after receiving an unwanted kiss, one that doesn't go unnoticed by the lady of the castle, her Aunt Liza. Once again, in this story, we find Sansa waking from a dream. She dreamt of a time that she was little, sharing a room with Arya, but instead of Arya, now she's next to her maid. Sometimes she dreams of ill and pain, but sometimes she dreams of home, as she does now. But she's not at home, she's in the Eyrie, which is larger than Maegar's Holdfast, and it's super fucking boring. And the older servants, though, have great stories about how Ned and Robert used to fill the Eyrie with laughter. Sansa, though, only has this Robert. And Marillion, who is the shitty guy in your dorm, who thinks that learning acoustic guitar and playing John Mayer and playing it in the hallway is going to make you want to sleep with him, but it really doesn't, unless for some reason you are Liza and have the taste in men in, as Liza does. Yeah. Marillion is a creep and a predator, and Sadza sees him. You listeners can't see what I'm doing, but she sees him. <laughs> uh, she sees his manipulation of her aunt, too. Which is so smart. I just like to point out when Sansa's smart. Which is like every second. So it really is why we have a lot of time today. <laughs> I won't ever shut up. Sorry. Me either. I, don't apologize. Never apologize <laughs> for Sansa Stark's intelligence and how big it is. It's so vast. It is just, it is a, it is a, <laughs> just a wide, what's like a thing? Like a ditch? No, like a, a valley. It is a valley of knowledge. A veil. A veil. A veil. A veil. Oh, 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 Whoa. Oh, dip. <laughs> huh. Speaking of her aunt, 
Lysa is also very lonely, since Peter's always away on these business trips. Like, right now, he's with the Corbrays. Almost all the other Vale Lords are mad for some reason or the other. Pretty much all of them hate his marriage. The Royces hate that they didn't enter the war with Rob, and they're supported by the Waynewoods, the Redforts, the Belmores, the Templetons. The Mountain Clans are all fighting amongst themselves. It's really just a shit show. It's really interesting. Uh, I wrote about this a while back on my blog. You can check it out. I'll leave a link below about how in the Winds of Winter, we're probably going to see a direct parallel of the Battle of the Seven Stars. We get in this line that we learn about uh, the Royce's hate they didn't enter the war with Rob. That's a huge nod to think about because, as we said, they're going to know. They're going to find out about Sansa's identity, and she is a horse to back. But the Waynewoods, the Redforts, the Belmores, and the Templetons were all a part of the Battle of the Seven Stars in ancient history in the original uh, Taking of the Veil. And there were two different factions, and all of these factions are actually fighting right now versus when they were during the Battle of the Seven Stars. So I think we can get and glean a few details from the end of that battle. There's a lot heating up in the Veil. Liza likes to think she kept the veil out of the worst of the war, but it's bubbling towards a head as we jet toward Feast. The winds of winter is pretty much when it's going to blow. Sansa turns out has too much of a headache to go back to bed, but that's okay, because it's a snow day. Sansa or someone did, you know, those little rituals in elementary school or whatever, where you spin around a few times in the bathroom and throw ice cubes in the toilet, or you wear your pajamas inside out to summon the snow. Maybe you do both. Maybe no one does this. Maybe this is only a thing that we do. Um, in the mid-Atlantic? I didn't know about the ice cubes. I didn't know the ice cubes. I knew the pajamas. We did that in the Midwest where mm. we actually get snow. Same. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Clearly works yeah. for all of you. I'm just saying where we get feet of snow. <laughs> um, feet. Foots. Yeah. So the snow starts to cover everything and Sansa remembers snow. The last time Sansa saw snow was the day she left Winterfell when Rob had melting snowflakes in his hair. <laughs> No, I'm not crying. You're crying. No, because I thought these were they two are separate several. Quotes. So do you want to do this? Is what I'm uh, saying. One. Okay. Um. Yeah, I'll do the Sansa one, and yeah. then you do the other ones, right? Okay. <laughs> In Sansa's chapter, she thinks it hurt to remember how happy she had been that morning. Helen had helped her mount, and she'd ridden out the snowflakes swirling around her off to see the great white world. I thought my song was beginning that day. But it was almost done. And then that reminds me of a bunch of other quotes. So we apologize for how quote heavy the second chapter is. But generally, we just outline these chapters and add some thoughts. And there's no point in outlining this. George did it better than anyone ever could. All of these quotes are just like really soul shattering. It really shows the best of the best for George. And a lot of these remind me of this quote. And I do have one last one we'll get to that's like the reminder of the quote. So bear with me. Leaving is harder than I thought. For me too, Rob said. He had snow in his hair, melting from the heat of his body. So of course, the OG snowflake quote, right? Like that's the one that's like, uh, uh. and of course, John remembers later on. He remembered Rob as he had last seen him, standing in the yard with snow melting in his auburn hair. John would have to come to him in in secret, disguised. He tried to imagine the look on Rob's face when he revealed himself. His brother would shake his head and smile, and he'd say, he'd say, that that line especially reminds me of something in a song, you know, of like, I don't know, just mm-hmm. some crap that would happen with some ancient 
person or a Targaryen or some bullshit in a song just all like, he came to save his brother disguised in the night. I don't know. Aww. Right? And of course, have a swift, safe voyage and take care of her and Aemon and the child. John smiled a strange, sad smile. And pull your hood up. The snowflakes are melting in your hair. That's a Sam chapter. And that one... Mm-hmm. A strange, sad smile of brotherhood. Oh. His new brother. They're brothers yeah. now. I'm glad you guys came to my sad talk. Instead of like a TED talk, it's a capital S A D talk. Sad. Yeah. S A D. Yeah. This passage, though, I think kind of reflects the most of the snow melting passages of like a character being at a crossroads or a character being in a place where they can't really make a bigger decision than what we're doing. John flexed the fingers of his sword hand. The Night's Watch takes no part. He closed his fist and opened it again. What you propose is nothing less than treason. He thought of Rob with snowflakes melting in his hair. Kill the boy and let the man be born. He thought of Bran clambering up a tower wall, agile as a monkey, of Rickon's breathless laughter, of Sansa brushing out Lady's coat and singing to herself, You know nothing, Jon Snow. He thought of Arya, her hair as tangled as a bird's nest. I feel like that's just such a really like a homey chapter that completely reflects on Sansa and the eerie of these kids wanting to go home. Even John, he's still a kid, man. He is a kid. They're all kids, except for, I don't know, the people who aren't kids. But And then Sansa puts on warm clothes and goes out into the yard. Says Sansa left the shutters open as she dressed, which I find to be a callback to the certain chapter in A Game of Thrones. Ned crossed the room, pulled back the heavy tapestries, and threw open the high, narrow windows one by one, letting the night air into the chamber. So uh, that's in the Catelyn chapter that probably is familiarly known amongst the fandom as Aching Loins. <laughs> Ned Ned is standing there, Starkers with the window open. It's a Stark thing, I guess. Eliana, that reminds me of your uh, Game of Thrones, Sansa, Ned stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a lot of what's going on here in this chapter, and that's why it harkened back to it at the beginning of this chapter where we were reminded by the servants that, hey, Ned and Robert used to run around here. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should try and have yes. fun too, even though, like, shit's sad. You know, there's something I've been thinking about a lot, and I think I briefly mentioned it maybe a week or two ago, but maybe, I don't think I did mention it on the podcast. If Sansa darkens her hair, wouldn't she become more of the Stark look, Right. She's completely going to look more like yeah. Ned. I mean, she'll have the Catelyn look too, but that dark hair and the light eyes, I mean, yes, Tully Blue is different mm-hmm. from the gray eyes of Stark, but it's still closer than like Hazel or Brown or et cetera. It's, uh, it's kind of interesting that her getting dark hair is actually really her coming closer to mm-hmm. the Stark blood and her being in the veils, of course, where mm-hmm. Ned grew up and where these people would have known him from. So... Valiant Ned's precious little girl is right there with the stark looks with her hair dyed dark. For sure, especially as, you know, her hair is dark in this chapter and she's finding home again. Uh, There's a lot of really great imagery in this chapter. The saddest line is when Sansa is standing there and she steps out and she goes, A pure world, Sansa thought. I do not belong here. 
And if we look back just one chapter to John 12, there is a line. And the stone kings were growling at him with granite tongues. You do not belong here. This is not your place. Which reinforces a lot of John references and connectivity that there are in this chapter. uh, Including in this very same paragraph, uh, ghostly silence. So... Ooh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Not at all. I, didn't think I do about love that. that. Yeah. I love that as well because that line just reinforces the complete opposite. We do know that John does belong there in a manner of speaking. He's <laughs> Leanna's son. He has a place there. Especially that line when he thinks, whoever my mother was, she didn't have a place for me. There was always a place for John, you guys. John always had a place. Always. Thank God. <laughs> Sansa stops by the statue that is of Alyssa Aaron. Whether or not there's confirmation, Catelyn has always thought it was Alyssa Aaron, so Sansa also thinks that. And legend has it that Alyssa Aaron, thousands of years ago, whether it's two, four, or six, depending on what you read, saw her entire family butchered in front of her, but she didn't shed a single tear. The gods decided since she did a tear, she has to weep until her tears reach the Vale of Arryn to water the graves of her loved ones. The waterfall that flows from the giant's lance is known as her tears, and it dissipates as it reaches the bottom, misting out, so it creates a never-ending pour of Alyssa's tears. And of course, in Catelyn 7, in A Game of Thrones, we get, Catelyn wondered how large a waterfall her own tears would make when she died. <laughs> uh, and this is fabulous cat. She saw her whole family butchered in front of her. Her husband, her sons, her daughters. They're all dead. Just her. Yeah. And, I mean, it's not like this is relevant for, you know, the epilogue that comes right after Not like the Tully's return to the water when they die or anything. Not like that wasn't a thing. (laughs) Not like, you know, tears. Tears of blood. Ned loves my hair. Ned loves my hair. Metal music. Ow. We already have gotten like some good hate mail. Not hate mail. It's all friends loving it. But of our, uh, I don't even remember what we said now about our Catalan 7 lightning round read through last episode, Eliana. But we've gotten people being like, that was so sad. Why did you hurt me like that? Oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Why of all the lines you could pick? Why was that the line you picked? It was like, it's our lightning round. Because it's sad hour. We're here for the sad talk. <laughs> Anyone can start an ASWAF podcast these days. We did it. You could too. <laughs> yeah, yours can be happy. Whereas ours, it's a lightning round, which means there's rain of tears. I don't know. If you want a happy yes. podcast, though, it will be very short. It would be very short, and it would not be about a song of ice and fire. About something else. Sports. I love the next part of the line. There's just so many good things in this <laughs> passage. She turned her face up to the sky and closed her eyes. She could feel the snow on her lashes, tasted on her lips. It was the taste of Winterfell, the taste of innocence, the taste of dreams. Yeah, I didn't really know what to say. I just wanted to put that in there because I was like, we need to all stop. Appreciate it. It's beauty. Just appreciate. Yeah. This is... We love this story. And she just like... Just the lines of her, like, falling to her knees. She doesn't remember when she fell. She just knows she fell. And she starts praying. Dawn, she thought, 
Another day, another new day. It was the old days she hungered for, prayed for, but who could she pray to? The garden had been meant for a godswood once, she knew, but the soil was too thin and stony for a weirwood to take root. A godswood without gods, as empty as me. Uh, a lot of people find this line to be significant as they think about the godswood and, you know, whether a weirwood can take root there or not, but I, I think that this rumination on the idea of dawn uh, as another day, another new day, it's especially poignant in this story because, you know, we're coming up against another long night and there's going to be another battle for the dawn, presumably, or we could all just give up, whatever. And surviving to a new day, and but longing for the old days, uh, for this innocence and happiness loss, is definitely something that I feel we can expect from George R. R. Martin's bittersweet ending. And so Sansa begins making perfect snowballs, and she remembers a day with Arya and Bran, when the two younger siblings had ambushed her with snowballs, and Sansa chased Arya until she slipped on the ice, and then Arya came back to see if Sansa was okay, and when she was sure that she was mm-hmm. fine, hit her in the face with another snowball. Then Sansa grabbed Arya by the leg and pulled her down to rub snow in her hair, and then Jory. pulls them both apart (laughs) when they're laughing and everybody's having fun and my god the taste of innocence the taste of dreams (laughs) screw you lady Gwen. why'd you have to do that to me why'd you write this book Uh, why'd you why i know why did it mention jory (laughs) right yeah had to go mention them I know. The twist is twisting you know, the knife. Sansa thinks they're all dead, and really the only one who's dead is Jor- Jory, so. Hey, do you ever think about how Beth is just in the dungeons of the frickin' Bolton Keep? God. Anyways, this entire chapter is just about innocence and innocence lost, and just like we talked about the whole blood orange symbolism, as Adam Feldman has brought up in the last chapter, snow, snow kind of represents home for Sansa. It represents Winterfell. This is. Sansa's needle was Jon Snow's smile speech, right? Her rebuilding her home, literally, right in front of her eyes. She is rebuilding Winterfell, her desire for it and her desire to see it. This fuels her motivation to get her back to the north and keep her going there instead of kind of just relying on being sedentary in the eerie. Without anyone to throw snowballs at, Sansa begins making a castle instead, and she begins with a tower. As she takes, uh, as her, her castle takes shape, Sansa realizes that her snow castle is Winterfell. And because, how weird, this girl's out here, I guess, making a snow castle. A bunch of people come out and they'll watch her for a little while. Then as the day begins to brighten, here's Liza Aaron. But turns out, I guess, Peter Baelish is here too. And he's been watching for a while. He comes out of nowhere and gives advice on building snow bridges. And then he asks Sansa if... Can I come into nope. your castle? Nope. You sure can't. Nope. You sure can't come into her castle. You need to stay away from her castle. Her castle is not allowing any visitors for the next 10 years. This castle is closed. Closed for business. You need 10 jobs to come into this castle. <laughs> yeah, you need a whole resume and Sansa, Sansa for some reason, uh, the languages, she replies to... Don't break it, and please be gentle. Oh. Well, if you've ever wondered what that game, Come Into My Castle, was all about. Yeah. That's it. This is it. And it's gross. So. 
thank God we have our our uh, recently married guest. <laughs> Jen, you're like, this is what it's about, girls, and it it's is gross. gross. <laughs> I feel like mom just gave me a sex ed class there. Like, don't touch little finger or you'll get pregnant and die. <laughs> so just stay away from it. Just <laughs> don't don't <laughs> let anyone ever come into your castle. With their little fingers. <laughs> Ever. Littlefinger says he thinks of Winterfell as a dark, cold, destitute place. And Sansa's is like, no, that's wrong. Winterfell was always warm. There are hot springs that heat the castle and the glass gardens. But then she gets stuck on how to make glass gardens. So Littlefinger helps her with sticks and leaves. And he's slowly like putting the moves on her. She's trying to make gargoyles, and he's like, oh, well, it would have snowed, so just make them snowy lumps. And Sansa is kind of having fun, right? She's in her element, her snowy element. Uh, You know, I loved a maid of winter, right? Uh, She throws snow in Littlefinger's face, and he was like, well, that was unchivalrously done. Sansa's like, so you were supposed to bring me home. You brought me here. That was unchivalrously done as well. And she wonders... Kind of where she got the courage to speak, right? Silently, she's like, wow, I was really bold right there. I am stronger within the walls of Winterfell. Yeah, boom. <laughs> uh, so she was like, oh, how dare you lie to me? And then he's like, yeah, I lied about that, but I'm also lying about this. And then he's like kissing her and she- you just gotta let her go. Just don't. Get a and job. Then, ugh, it's so gross because it's all weird. He's like holding her and then she's like, ugh, I tried to fight it off and then I just like gave up. I'm like, shit, dude. Had a fucking job, little finger. Holy crap. Stay away ugh. from her. It felt really good to say that. It's been a while and just stay away from her and get a job because Jesus, this is not how you get an underaged girlfriend. <laughs> oh my like, God. I'm waiting for Chris Hansen. To walk on out right now and be like, well, Peter, it's funny that we found you here, which I guess that'll be like Bran and Arya or some crap. And I'm <laughs> drink Rolling out like, interesting, we found you here, Peter. Can we interest you in a drink? You want to sit down? We should chat. <laughs> <laughs> it's on dateline. Oh, my God. Sansa is like, wow, you should be kissing Liza, not me, because Peter's like, I'm kissing a snow maid. Peter's like, yeah. I could kiss Liza, but you're pretty beautiful. Sansa feels at that moment like Peter is acting a bit like Marillion, and she remarks, I could have been your own daughter. Might have been, he admitted with a rueful smile. (gasps) But you're not, are you? You're Eddard Stark's daughter and cats, which, you know, he's justifying it, I guess, at the same time. But I think you might be even more beautiful than your mother was when she was your age. Oh, oh, job. Oh, oh my God! It's so uncomfortable. It's so gross. Like, oh God, they're different. Am I doing a good so little young. finger though? Do you think that's good? Am I creepy? Y- Thank you, you are. That's all I wanted. Just wanted to know. <laughs> uh, to elaborate on what's happening in this scene, along with the last chapter, uh, George R. R. Martin has actually spoken about the way Littlefinger feels towards Sansa in a video that's been released by HBO. And Martin says, you know, I can't actually do a George R. R. Martin impression. I'm sorry. So that I'm just going to read this, all right? Sometimes he sees Sansa, and she's the daughter he never had, Martin says. The daughter that he might have had with Kat. But at other times, he detaches himself from that, and he's less Peter, and more Littlefinger, and she's just another piece in the Game of Thrones. 
Yet other times, she's not Cat's daughter. She's young Cat. She's his teenage fantasies returned again. She's like, ew, let it go. Let it go. This this is what we call, like, stunted growth. Throughout these two chapters, you can see, like, Peter, yeah, ping-ponging between all these different versions or visions that he has of Sansa. And for Sansa to say that Peter's acting like Marillion, like, that's code word for predatory. Uh, uh. Hey, but Sweet Robin shows up and saves the day. Uh, the only time we will ever say that. He's got this doll and he's like, it's a giant. And he begins to destroy Sansa's snow castle, not being gentle with it. It's not so great. The boy knelt before the gatehouse. Look, here comes a giant to knock it down. He stood his doll in the snow and moved it jerkily. Tromp, tromp, I'm a giant, I'm a giant, he chanted. Ho, 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 open your gates or I'll mash them and smash them. Swinging the doll by the legs, he knocked the top off one gatehouse tower and then the other. For that, Sansa says to stop, and then she accidentally ends up ripping the doll apart, which upsets Robert, and he begins to have a seizure. A lot of people kind of like to say, this fulfills the ghost of High Heart's prophecy, but I think it's a blatant fake out, like obviously, since we just heard the prophecy a little bit ago, it's supposed to string the plot along. What do you think, Lady Gwen? Oh, definitely. And for those of you that need the refresher, here's the line. It says, the ghost of High Heart said, I dreamt of a maid at a feast with purple serpents in her hair, venom dripping from their fangs. Purple wedding, of course. And later, I dreamt that maid, again, slaying a savage giant in a castle built of snow. So, yeah, that's a fake out, because remember the Baelish sigil? And when Arya approaches Bravos for the first time in Feast, we're going to see. So when Arya approaches Bravos for the first time and sees the Titan in Feast for Crows, she thinks he could step right over the walls of Winterfell. And what did old Peter Titanhead do when he came into Sansa's castle? He stepped right over the walls, right? Only then Sansa metaphorically tore the head off of a giant and spiked it to those very same walls so goes to high heart's castle i think and probably a lot of us think is actually winterfell the scene is really just a connector between her prophecy and something as yet to happen like peter baelish's titan's head literally spiked on the walls of winterfell yes yeah, and I wouldn't even say like that it's a fake out. It just feels like another layer in George R. R. Martin's threefold revelation or like his threefold strategy for how he brings something about. It's another one of those hints, as you said, like after the prophecy and it bolsters it of Sansa defeating Peter. And I think there's so much language just throughout this entire chapter that's pointing back to this prophecy that it can't just be this thing, like, mm. right? Like, we're seeing Winterfell covered in snow, Sansa thinking, I'm stronger than Winterfell, and then Liza being like, you're supposed to be stronger than the snow. And, like, the scene absolutely just isn't a fulfillment of that prophecy. That'd be anticlimactic, especially because we have all these other things that happen mm. here, but rather a reinforcement yes. of the prophecy. Um, also... But I have a question for our panel of people, the other people on this cast. There are theories uh, that the language that's here, right, like, you know, as you were saying about a giant just stepping over the walls of Winterfell or how we've been talking about coming to my castle and then Sweet Robin going, open your gates or I'll mash them and smash them. Uh, 
people take this to be wordplay, meaning that Littlefinger might, like, take Sansa's maidenhead or try to. I'm just wondering what everyone's thoughts are on those theories. As I mentioned earlier, I'm a strong 60-40, it could happen. But I don't want to talk about it ever again. I would like you never to speak any more about it because it's gross. And that's what I would like to Mm. say. Just kidding. But it's a probable thing. I do think, like I said, she's going to escape, you know, no no harm, no foul. When I say foul, I mean bird, a.k.a. Mockingbird. (laughs) (laughs) I got there. But uh, get a job. Also, like, God, but I don't, I, I think her virtue is like so important. Her innocence is such a recurring, like, oh, she's such a maiden. So I hope he just stays away from her. Yeah. She she doesn't need more right now. I just want to say ew. Yeah. But having said that, it would only make sense that he's going to try. He's going to make the attempt. But I want to add a sidebar. We mentioned uh, Freudian things earlier. And Ileana, you wanted to. You know, always thought it would be a good idea to maybe point out some Freudian things. So I'll just say, leave this here. Uh, the Freudian meaning of beheading, apparently, is castration. So. Because oh, you're taking the head off. I'm okay with that. You know. Yeah. So. The head of the. Do what you will with that. Just how little is his little finger, asked Randa. <laughs> Uh, why would she ask that it's so weird who asks that I mean like we know why she's asking that I know she's trying to figure out if Sansa's having relations with him you know know, I know but it's just like gross anyways so much ew Uh, Maester Coleman and some servants appear and they've brought uh, Sweet Robin to the Maester's chambers after he has that seizure, and then Sweet Robin's just saying, it wasn't me, it was a giant who's running the castle, then he wails about how he hates Sansa, and then Sansa's like, well, that's my that's my lord husband, I guess, <laughs> and then she decides to put the doll's head upon a spike at the gatehouse of Winterfell, and allegedly, according to Littlefinger, it is not the first giant to have its head on a spike at Winterfell. And it won't be the last either if Sansa has her way, will it now? Da, da, da. Da, da, da. Sansa waits in her bedchamber for Liza to call for her, and then she thinks upon the Royces, and we hear about Nestor and Miranda. She plans to say she won't marry Robert and that she'd prefer Tyrion in order to be sent away. She starts kind of get herself going riled up on that, right? She does that in Clash and in Game of Thrones when she's in her captivity and... She goes between all those moods, kind of like we see Ariadne go through, you know, mm. the stages of denial there. Of all people, Marillion is the one that is sent to collect Sansa, and apparently he has a reputation for being an asshole among the rest of the staff, which we are definitely seeing. Yeah, he's just a st- huge creep also to the rest of the women the way that we saw he was to Sansa in the previous chapter, and I don't know, it sh- I shudder to think of what happens to the ones who don't have, like, a Lothar brew in order to protect them. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, he gets away with it because Liza likes him too much, I guess. And he's like, oh, Sansa. But he doesn't say Sansa. He's like, oh, Elaine, I'm writing a song called The Roadside Rose about a baseborn girl who's so pretty. Everyone loves her. There is a little bit of that R plus L equals J nod in there, right? The Roadside mm-hmm. Rose. Mm-hmm. I think that's totally a little mini nod. Just a little, ah, ah. You guys see the whole recurring theme <laughs> thing that I do? Yeah. Said George? <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Sure. He escorts Sansa to the High Hall, which is now open for business, highly unusual because no one's been in there a while. And then it's just Elaine and Liza, and Marillion is there, and he's playing his music louder and louder and louder. Liza is decked out. She's wearing cream velvet, sapphires, and moonstones. She's pulling all the stops out, all the outfits, and she has the banners of House Aaron behind her. It's a total power move. Yes. It's a total power move. Yeah. These are her finest, right? This is her best, her Sunday's best, as I like to say, on the cast. She's wearing the cream of House Aaron. She's asserting her power in her own household. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting to see how... In order to seize that power, as you said, Liza's claiming these colors, despite, you know, later revelations about Liza and John. But it also speaks to how much she shuns that Tully identity because it was so painful for her. She says to Sansa, I know what you did. And Sansa's like, I'm sorry about Robert. And Liza's like, no, I saw you kissing him. And Sansa's like, whoa, this is not what I expected to be, this conversation to be about. Like, Hold up, everyone. Yeah, Liza is totally convinced that Sansa threw herself at Peter, and Liza is trying to wrestle a confession out of Sansa, and then they'll have a girl whipped in her stead, she says, as she has for Robert. She says it's supposedly the custom of the free cities. And of course, right now, in kind of where we are, common Aeswaf, uh, modern Aeswaf, Tommen has one, Pate, the whipping boy. And it also makes me think on Aegon the Thirds with Fire and Blood's release with Game and Pale Hair as well. Oh, uh, no one's throwing themselves at Peter except for Liza. Anyways, Liza says that she apparently cannot abide a liar, which whatever, like it's in your name, and also everything else that happens in this chapter. What else? Would you say a lie, Zandarber? Yeah. Indeed, I would. Is that is that who you identify with, Chloe? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, you're I'm not. not. <laughs> Liza's out here. She's just slut shaming Sansa for things that never even happened, and then she goes, "Cat also used to toy with Peter," and apparently Liza's never let this go. She's just really held on to this for all these years that Catelyn danced with Peter. Six times uh, the time that Lords Blackwood and Bracken brought their argument to one another. One of many arguments, I'm sure, that they've had over the years to Hoster Tully. And then Peter was very drunk, which I guess a lot of people were that night too, and tries to kiss Catelyn. She just goes, nah. And she supposedly laughed at him. And Peter was just so sad and upset that he got drunk and passed out. And then... Brendan Blackfish was like, oh, that's not a good look, and then brings Peter back up to his room. This is the night, I guess, that uh, Liza stole up to Peter's room and took advantage of him. Yeah, Peter thinks that he took Kat's virginity, but it was Liza. It was Eliza and Arbor. Oh my god. <laughs> I'll go. Liza Aaron was frightening her as much as the Queen Cersei ever had. Yeah, I mean, internalized misogyny is really scary and frightening, for sure. Yeah, imagine if Sansa had an adult figure in her life that was maybe worried about her well-being. Yeah. Anyone? Yeah. yeah. So Liza reveals that Peter was supposed to have been banished, but not for the duel with Brandon, but rather because she had become pregnant by him, and now she's never going to let anyone take him from her ever again. So Sansa attempts to confess, 
Liza twists it and grabs her, summoning Marillion to play the false and the fair. Ironically. Ironically. See, <laughs> Liza thinks Sansa is false and she is fair, but in reality, it's the opposite. You were bold enough in the snow, and she orders Sansa to open the doors herself. She says, at least Kat was brave. And Liza's just like forcing Sansa to look out of the door, and Marillion's singing. <sighs> And like it, it's a perfect parallel though to that first Storm of Swords chapter where like that big thing where Sansa was talking about how awful and terrible Joffrey is to the Tyrells happened uh, under the cover of someone else singing, and Liza's trying to do that here too. Yeah, Sansa actually, as she's about to go down, you know, she's slowly being edged closer and closer through the moon doors, which uh, in the books. They're vertical doors, right? In the show, it's just a big, like, hole in the floor. But in the books, it's actually doors in the wall. So Zanza is, like, grabbing Liza's hair because Liza is grabbing at her. And the language kind of echoes Kat's last thoughts. I really love that Sansa doesn't go down without a fight here. It's also an echo to her last chapter in A Game of Thrones of wanting to push Joffrey off of the battlements and taking him down with her. And then, of course, Littlefinger comes in, and it's like, you know, that gif of uh, Troy from Community coming in, and then there's, like, this pizza and the fires, and that's about it. Uh, Liza then says, Sansa has no gratitude after I agreed to let you marry Robert Aaron, and I don't want her here. And then Peter's like, it's fine, it's fine, all right, just let her go. We can send her back to King's Landing then, if you want. And I can see why Peter thought that this was going to placate Liza. Because if Liza had been like Cersei, or even the least bit lucid at this moment, sending Sansa back to King's Landing isn't just, oh, we're going to send the kid that we don't like back to boarding school so we don't have to deal with her. It's sending her back to King's Landing is basically a death sentence because she's wanted for regicide. And Sansa at this moment is like grasping at the pillar, the marble pillar. And she's like, what the fuck? You're sending me back to King's Landing? What the, what the fuck? What? What happened to home? <laughs> right, like, first it was home, then you said, no, we're going to the Eerie. Now you're like, well, it's time to die. Like, what? I thought you wanted me. <laughs> Liza freaks out, and this is everything ever that ever comes out. She just loses it. You can't want her. You can't. She's a stupid, empty-headed little girl. She doesn't love you the way I have. I've always loved you. I've proved it, haven't I? Tears ran down her aunt's puffy red face. I gave you my maiden's gift. I would have given you a son, too, but they murdered him with moon tea, with tansy and mint and wormwood, a spoon of honey, and a drop of pettyroyal. It wasn't me. I never knew. I only drank what father gave me. That's past and done, Liza. Lord Hosta's dead and his old maester as well. Littlefinger moved closer. Have you been at the wine again? You ought not to talk so much. We don't want Elaine to know more than she should, do we? Or Marillion? Lady Liza ignored that. Cat never gave you anything! It was me who got you your first post, who made John bring you to court so we could be close to one another. You promised me you would never forget that. Nor have I. We're together, just as you've always wanted, just as we always planned. Now let go of Sansa's hair. I won't. I saw you kissing in the snow. She's just like her mother. 
Catelyn kissed you in the godswood, but she never meant it. She never wanted you. Why did you love her best? It was me. It was always me. I know love. He took another step. And I am here. All you need to do is take my hand. Come on. He held it out. There's no cause for all these tears. Tears! 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 She sobbed hysterically. No need for tears, but that's not what you said in King's Landing. You told me to put the tears in John's wine, and I did, for Robert, and for us. And I wrote Catelyn and told her the Lannisters had killed my lord husband, just as you said. That was so clever. You were always clever. I told father that. I said, Peter's so clever. He'll rise high. He will. He will. And he's sweet and gentle. And I have his little baby in my belly. Why did you kiss her? Why? We're together now. We're together after so long. So very long. Why would you want to kiss her? <sighs> Damn. Thank you, Lady Yeah, that was the best. That, that was... We'll never ask anything of you again. You can coach okay, from here on out. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack here, and you sold it. So A plus to Lady Gwen. She sold it. That was, oh, I knew she could do it. Like I, I knew, I knew she could. I was like, let's do that. That was good. That was good. Good call, Eliana. I knew I liked. I'm a director. <laughs> you know. You know what? I don't care what other people say about you, Eliana. I love. You. Me too. Did anyone say it? Oh, whatever. <laughs> anyway. Did they? Uh, so, no, it's really emotional because Liza is this pathetic, like sympathetic but pathetic character. And you're just like, she just put all of her, her, uh, you know, her eggs in this basket, mm-hmm. right? Like, she's like, this is it. I love Peter. And like, it. we learned so much. Liza's kid or kids, whatever, were killed by Hoster, as implied over the chapters in River Run with Cat and Hoster as he's dying, which, of course, is probably why Brendan ran off with Liza, with Hoster always pushing a marriage at him and him pushing abortion on his daughter. And that's probably why Liza's so upset he runs off with Catelyn, too, because Cat was always taking away from her the few things she had as the younger sister. Peter, Uncle Blackfish. What I find interesting is that Peter, of course, knows that the second time, the time after the duel with Brandon, he was actually having sex with Liza, which is why he puts around the story that he's had both the sisters' maidenheads, because he assumes that that's what he did on that occasion. But... Here, she's ranting about that first time, and he doesn't even have a clue. He still doesn't get it. And did we mention, like, Liza killed John Aaron and Cersei didn't, which everyone's led to believe after the first couple books? Like, it was Liza, by the way. Tears of Leaf. Ha! Tears. Hey. Yeah. Tears, tears, tears. All the tears stuff. Tears of, tears of Liza. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we wouldn't want Elaine to know any more than she should, right? Or the singer who tells everyone everything. Like, oh shit, Lysa, you're drunk again. We've <laughs> been at the wine. Huh? Just stop talking or possibly just tell everybody, these two witnesses, everything. And Oops. He's lucky that earlier in the chapter, Liza was just spewing untruths about Sansa throwing herself at 
little finger. Because otherwise, you know, everything that happened here would have seemed a lot more plausible to Sansa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think one day she'll maybe replay this scene in her head and maybe start to pick out some of the true bits. I, mm-hmm. you know. I'm pretty sure Sansa <laughs> will understand the true bits by the time she needs to understand mm-hmm. them. If we're talking about a dagger in the dark, this is the very last dagger that's going to go into Littlefinger mm-hmm. right here. I mean, him killing Liza, that's that's big. Her testifying right now falsely in the future here as we get going is one thing, but in the future when her testifying truthfully that Littlefinger killed Liza, I mean, that's, that's yep. death. For sure. <sighs> so yeah, of course now Littlefinger's like, fuck my life. Liza just... Yeah, she just talked about everything. And so what he does is I'm gonna bring I'm gonna bring Liza in for a kiss. And Sansa just looks down at herself and goes, Wow, I'm a fucking mess. <laughs> uh, I guess my shoe fell out the door, which R.I.P. shoe. <laughs> I love that she loses her shoe here because it's that it's that inverted rags to riches thing and that princess in disguise Cinderella trope kind of going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is probably gonna come into play later, especially with um some knight called the mouse. The, the mad mouse. mouse. And then, of course, we get the scene of, I've only ever one- loved one person in my whole life. Oh, that's not the exact word. It's close enough. And it's only Cat. Yeah, he does that same thing he did in the chapter before when Liza was upset. He calms her down with false affection, enough to get her close enough physically to him, and then push right out the moon door. Yeah, and Marillion's just stunned. He's like, whoa. <laughs> What just happened here? You, you, as he says. There's a lot of things that can go on there. But what happens is Littlefinger stands there and says, hurry, guards, this man's just killed my wife. And that is the end of the chapter. The uh, official end of A Storm of Swords, not counting the epilogue, which is very epic in its own right. We will be getting to those sometime, and that is a storm of swords, Sansa. This book has been the ride. There's so much that happens in this book. <laughs> Especially for Sansa. The whirlwind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. What's your overall thought on the episode, Eliana? What, uh, how do you feel about those last two chapters? They're really formational chapters for Sansa, right? That's the foundation of her starting in A Feast for Crows, being Elaine Stone. It's a foundational chapter for Sansa, as well as being a fulcrum for the entire series, as we realize the Lannisters weren't necessarily behind everything the way that we thought. It was Littlefinger, and that instantly elevates not only Sansa's development as we see throughout this book, but her position in the story if she's the one who has to now contend with Littlefinger. Lots to live up to. Well, I will say that I I actually love... Sons of Chapters in Storm of Swords. They're my favorite Sons of Chapters. I like what you said about the fulcrum. I think a lot of the action in this book for her, it's uh, quite pivotal. She's moving from one state of being to another. These two chapters are so dense and so important. And I'm really, really honored that you asked me to come and talk about them with you. Oh, thank you so much for coming and talking with us. I mean... From, you know, Ponda Player and from all of your work with Radio Westeros and, of course, on your actual blog on WordPress where you post a lot of your personal takes, uh, you have been a foundation in the Sansa Stark community in A Song of Ice and Fire. All of your works are really respected and to have you on for one of our Sansa episodes is kind of a big deal. I'm 
not trying to make a big deal out of it, but it's kind of a big deal. You're kind of a big deal. So thank thank you for joining us. It's a big deal. Thank you so much. It's fine. That's very kind. Of course, starting not this week, you guys, or next week, because we will not have an episode until the new year for the public. We will have a part two to the Dance of the Dragons coming out by the end of December for patrons, $5 and up. You can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon for that. But otherwise, this is our last episode of the year, you guys. We went out with a bang on A Storm of Swords Sansa. We didn't plan it this way. We got lucky after our 1,233 hours of Sansa at the Blackwater. (laughs) So thanks again so much, Lady Gwyn, for coming on with us. And please let everyone know one more time where we can find you. Okay, well, you can find me for the most part at RadioWesteros.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio Westeros. You can also find me on Twitter at Lady Guinevere, which you won't be able to spell. But, oh, make a stab at it. We'll leave it in the description, I promise. (laughs) Check out our latest episode on the Hedge Knight that you mentioned at the top of the episode. We're really proud of that one. But we've also done episodes on Sansa, on Sandor. And a great massive mm-hmm. two-parter on Littlefinger, which I'm super, super fond of because he's really, as much as we Stop. hate him, he was really interesting to uh, write about. So thank you. So Girls Gone Canon fans, be sure to join us after the new year as we pop off 2019 with Sansa in a feast for crows and transition into our next point of view and make sure you subscribe to us you can find us on spotify on itunes on google play on acast and on stitcher and of course you can find us on social media and on email like leave us some season's greetings you don't have to you're not obliged to do anything but if you wanted to we are on twitter as girls gone canon you can shoot us an email at girls canon at gmail.com hey apparently you can leave comments on podbean and you can also leave us a review on itunes so there's so many ways that you can talk to us we are always online and canon so <laughs> big shout out again to lady gwyn for joining us and as always i have been chloe you can find me on the internet at liesandarborgold.com. And I'm your other host, Eliana, uh, also known as Glass Table Girl and other places in the internet. Thanks again so much, you guys. We'll talk to you after the new year.